Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week we ask, what is degrowth? A new economic model that enhances ecological conditions and ensures that everyone has enough to live well. And we explore how degrowth compares to other models looking to restructure our economies for a more environmentally sustainable future. For many of us, economic progress should bring about social and environmental well-being. I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. This is the opportunity for the world to try to stop climate change getting out of control. As world leaders and their negotiators prepare to meet in Glasgow for the UN Climate Summit next week, debates are swirling around emissions targets, net zero pledges and about money to adapt to climate change. Many of the proposed solutions to limit global average temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels center around technology and renewables. At the heart of this is the concept of green growth, continuing to just grow the economy and produce more stuff in general, but using renewable resources and efficient ways to produce those goods. But some economists have long argued that to really save our planet and ourselves, we need a fundamental overhaul of our economy. The issue is one of economic growth how it's measured, how it preoccupies the minds of politicians, and what it means for citizens in the environment. There are many proposed solutions, and one that's been gaining traction is the degrowth movement. In this episode, we talk to three experts to help explain what degrowth is and what kind of attention this idea is getting today. We've decided to dedicate our whole episode to degrowth, so before we get into talking about the specifics, let's start with the problem. We live today in a market-based economy where at 3% growth, an economy doubles every 23 years. This is Sam Alexander. I'm a lecturer and researcher at the University of Melbourne in Australia. And uh, over the last 10 years, I've been teaching at Melbourne Uni a course called Consumerism and the Growth Economy. Sam's research basically focuses on the problems that come from the world's preoccupation with economic growth. With that, he says, come a lot of assumptions about money. Now, Money allows us to buy many of the things that we need to satisfy our most pressing desires. You know, nice carpet and big houses and flash cars and exotic travel and so on and so forth. When we buy and consume things, the money we spend can be taxed. Governments like taxes, governments like money, so they like it when economies grow. Governments want more money through economic growth that they can fund important social services, more schools, better hospitals, military, building roads and infrastructure, social services, the unemployment benefit, as well as perhaps we could say even funding environmental programs. The problem, Sam says, is that economic growth comes with a big cost. We're now entering a phase that over the last 300 years of industrial development, we are, as a human species, changing earth systems, the climate system in particular. We are you know, deforesting the planet, we're emptying the oceans, we're destroying topsoils, we're over-consuming renewable resources, we have over-reliance on non-renewable resources. So this economic expansion of the human economic footprint on planet Earth has led to a gross ecological overshoot. And our conception of progress still remains almost exclusively growth-orientated. 
the best science is suggesting that we are in a state of ecological overshoot and have been for some time. And there are various frameworks with which scientists have tried to do this. One is the ecological footprint analysis, which recently published its report suggesting that we would need 1.7 planets if we were to continue the existing planet going into the deep future. And that's not including growth. That's just as of today. As of today, the existing economy. It's this critique that inspired some philosophers to come together to question the pursuit of growth itself and argue for alternatives. There is a developing degrowth movement which says we need to rethink the fundamentals of this growth-orientated trajectory. And it's come up with this term degrowth, which was coined in the early 70s. And it basically means a new societal or economic model based on planned contraction of the energy and resource demands of our economies uh, in a way that enhances ecological conditions and ensures that everyone has enough to live well both human and non-human. Sam told me that today, economists in the degrowth movement are far from the only ones concerned about the environmental toll of the world's economic systems. But the mainstream response to the environmental predicament is to not question the growth economy, but to try to grow in a green way. The argument here is that it's possible to disentangle economic growth from negative environmental impacts. You do this by shifting away from fossil fuels and intense resource extraction. This is known as decoupling, and there are some big proponents of this idea. It's the main theory that underpins the Green New Deal in the US, and more generally, just the idea of green growth. In theory, this is coherent because we know that, for example, we could produce our goods and services in less energy and material intensive ways. If I were a car manufacturer, I could, through design and innovation, discover how to make that same car with 10% less materials. So I could provide cars to my community, but with less material impact. The problem is that Let's say I reduce my steel demands for the car by 10%, but I sell 20% more cars. I've efficiently produced the car, or more efficiently produced the car, but the actual material and energy demands of car manufacture have gone up because I'm selling more cars. This is where the degrowth model really branches off from green growth. It's distinguished from the green growth model by suggesting that we're not going to be able to shrink the human material and energy footprint in a sustainable way through the application of technological innovation and market mechanisms alone. So degrowth, it's not an anti-technological position. It's a, it advocates for appropriate technology and constrained market activity, but it's of the view that technology and markets alone will not be able to resolve the ecological predicament in a way that is also socially just and can lead to uh, flourishing lives for us all. So what might degrowth actually look like for people living in the world's richest countries, for example? It's going to involve less driving and more walking and more cycling and more use of uh, public transport. It might be a rethinking of our diets. We might have smaller houses. We may well be traveling less globally because it's very hard to fly a passenger plane on renewable energy at the moment, at least. Essentially, all aspects of our lives, energy, housing, food, socializing, consumption, clothing, all these different aspects are going to require fundamental rethink.
But not all economists who are critical of growth and skeptical that it can be actually decoupled from the negative impacts on the environment and also society are sold on the idea of degrowth. Yeah, that's right, Dan. And I spoke to one of them, Lorenzo Fioramonti, a professor of political economy at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. I'm also a research fellow at the Center for Social Investment of the University of Heidelberg in Germany, a research associate with uh, the University of the United Nations. But over the past three years, I've been doing something different. I became a member of parliament in Italy. Lorenzo is part of another group of academics and thinkers who call themselves post-growth economists. He appreciates the contributions made by the degrowth movement, but he worries that the measures its supporters advocate aren't always tenable. Degrowth intellectuals were the first to highlight the contradictions of the growth model. And I think they've been extremely innovative. Um, They developed a very robust and interesting idea of what a good society should be, almost from a philosophical point of view, more than from an economic point of view. But also, at the same time, a weak economic architecture. The early degrowth intellectuals were arguing that we should all live more convivially, that we should all live more frugally, that time should be spent being together, consuming less, and get more involved in in social activities rather than work. Very idyllic, which is extremely alluring to many people. I mean, I think it's beautiful to think that you can sit around a bonfire and, and tell stories and so on and so forth. But definitely... The economic theory behind it, it tends to be weak, right? Lorenzo says part of the problem is how the term degrowth could be perceived by poorer countries, particularly those in Africa. I take you to Malawi and they're going to tell you, oh, we've had degrowth for the past 50 years and we don't live well, you know. Um, how do you go to uh, to Swaziland or to Gabon and argue about negative growth? They're going to tell you, look, you can come here and stay here. We have degrowth every single day. That's why we don't have electricity in our homes. That's why we don't have any food. That's why we don't go to school. That's why we don't have hospitals. So for as long as our brand is degrowth, we're going to be confined to the rich capitals of the North, where there's been a lot of growth. And now people are rich enough to start fantasizing about a world in which you can leave your car in the parking lot and go for a walk. But those countries that have never seen growth will never embrace degrowth. Another problem, he says, is to do with the word degrowth. I think the concept of degrowth, with all its merits, is still perceived as a negative. Even the name itself, degrowth, it's wrongly perceived as negative growth. I think their brand is not capturing what we really need. What we need is another model of growth. It's not negative GDP growth. In recent years, Lorenzo has written a couple of books arguing that the world needs to move away from its obsession with gross domestic product, or GDP, as a way to measure growth. Our economy expands according to GDP, even when it produces negatives, when it produces things that harm our economic activities. Um, Disasters increase GDP because reconstruction has to happen. Contamination, pollution increases GDP because you have to clean up. Um, Every time that something bad happens, somehow GDP moves and and ticks up. And this is a problem because um, we should actually measure what helps our economy improve, right? GDP was first developed as a way to measure economic growth in the 1930s and 40s in the US. This was in the wake of the Great Depression and in the lead up to World War II. It was adopted more globally in 1944 at the Bretton Woods Conference, at which both the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank were founded. It's an indicator of an old type of economic expansion, when destruction of the environment, exploitation of society, and somehow very inefficient industrial processes were 
the norm. But nowadays, they're no longer the norm. Actually, we consider an economy that is cleaner, an, an economy that is more innovative, an economy that is quicker at doing things with less impact. Actually, we consider it better. And GDP doesn't do that. So GDP likes squandering energy, likes you know, wasting energy, because that moves more money for someone. Meanwhile, in poorer countries, Lorenzo says that the pursuit of GDP growth encourages a dependence on a particular model of development. These countries are faced with the contradiction of having to give away something in order to see GDP grow. But they intuitively realize that giving away what they have is not a good idea. And so some of these countries have seen sudden spurs of growth and then followed by destruction and despair every second year. If you look at the African continents, there's been growth and degrowth, growth and degrowth all the time. Very destabilizing. Some of these countries don't realize why the fact that they can use their own energy to produce, for instance, clean energy via solar panel and wind turbines on the rooftops and consume their own energy, why that doesn't count towards GDP. But if they sell it to someone else or if they put it together under a huge central plant, then GDP measures that as contributing to growth. It's increasing inequalities. And for many of us, it means more poverty, especially when you consider informal economies. Uh, when in order to create GDP growth, you have to privatise natural resources. This is because the transfer of money from one landowner to another counts towards GDP. You have to enclose public areas. Uh, what happens to the shepherds, you know, people that could access some of these resources openly, and now they can't anymore. So you're creating more poverty for them. And in some cases, you're creating a lot of wealth for a few, for a small elite. And that, again, is destabilising for many of these societies. Lorenzo advocates governments should focus on positive outcomes, such as well-being, rather than economic activity, to gauge their success. So for many of us, economic progress and, and a good economy should bring about social and environmental well-being. You know, people should live better. They should live longer. There should be, uh, there should be more social cohesion and the environment should be cleaner. That should be what a good economy does Paradoxically, we are rewarding countries for doing exactly the opposite via the model of GDP growth. It's about consuming better more than less. You know, when you consume better, you consume less. We waste 30% of our food production. That's a serious inefficiency of the growth model and that no one really wants. So consuming better means having less impact on society and the environment. There have been attempts to develop methodologies that can measure these more positive economic outcomes. The genuine progress indicator does precisely this. So you say, take away money. We don't want to measure how money moves, but we simply want to measure the well-being outcomes. Is a society uh, increasing literacy? Positive. Is a society increasing um, ecological sustainability? Positive. Are natural ecosystems more resilient in a society than in another, that's a positive for society, and so on and so forth. So we're not measuring how money moves, and we're measuring the outcomes. Lorenzo believes that an economic theory focused on well-being is also politically more acceptable than one that appears to advocate for negative growth. You're obviously now a politician. Is it really difficult politically to advocate for the ideas of degrowth? I think it's very hard and it's politically almost impossible to do so. And, and again, I want to underline this. I'm sympathetic to the degrowth argument. Some of the degrowth proponents are very good friends of mine and I have huge respect for their work. 
But I think if we want to have success in policy, if we want to have success in the media, if you want to have a concept that travels around the world and is successful not just in Berlin or in London or in New York, but it's successful also in Lusaka, in Angola and, and in Vietnam or anywhere else, you need to have a different message. Degrowth as a concept doesn't travel well in politics. It's often ridiculed in the media. And it's certainly not warming the hearts and minds of people in, as I call, not GDP developed countries. And you do need a new code, a new narrative. And this narrative has to be somehow able to produce excitement in society. And I still think that the concept of well-being is, at the end of the day, what we all want. The degrowth promoters want a well-being economy. When I spoke to Sam Alexander, he acknowledged that there are definitely some hurdles to popularizing the ideas of degrowth. But he emphasized repeatedly that the world degrowthers like him advocate for doesn't necessarily have to be a life of deprivation or sacrifice or hardship. It does if our only conception of the good life is more is better. But that's one of the conceptions that the degrowth movement is challenging. They are trying to rethink the consumerist conception of the good life in such a way that we might actually understand and realize a way of life that increases our quality of life despite shrinking our material footprints. So one way to understand degrowth is a trade of sorts, less stuff, but more freedom or more community or more time for ourselves to pursue our private passions or more connection with nature. Uh, there is a way to move toward a degrowth economy of sufficiency, sustainability, distributive justice that doesn't mean that we are going to be living uh, in caves with candles. You know, We can live well on less, um, but it does require a rethinking of high-impact cultures of consumption. Sam told me that the biggest challenge to making a shift to degrowth is that the economic systems and social fabric of the world itself are structured towards growth. This attempt to live with less within a growth-orientated system is extremely difficult. In a sense, we are locked in to high-consumption living by virtue of both the political and regulatory structure systems within which we live, and also the infrastructure. So to give some small examples, it's very hard to escape your car if there are no safe bike lanes to get yourself to work, or if there's no public transport that can will take you to work, or if you live so far out because you can only afford a house in the distant suburbs and you know, people will get in their cars and they should get in their cars if that means they can provide for their children. All this means that governments would need to play a crucial role in making large-scale transformation happen. We cannot produce a degrowth society purely through personal action alone. There will need to be a political and a macroeconomic adjustment. We might need policies that lead to resource caps to recognize that we only have a right to a fair share of global resources. We might have reduced working hours. We might need to rethink the way our governments are spending their money to um, pursue a post-growth vision of progress rather than a growth-orientated one. There will be distributive policies that will need to manage any economic contraction in a way that ensures that the poorest kept afloat in any complicated transition. And it will be a complicated transition. It's unlikely to be smooth, 
there will be severe forces that will resist any degrowth transition. And that will be part of the political challenge. But Sam also pointed out that the change looks different depending on where you are in the world. Nobody in the degrowth movement has ever called on the poorest people in uh, the world to contract their material needs because that's uh, that would be insane and unethical. There are still billions of people around the world who are under-consuming by any humane standard. And so a conception of progress would have to involve lifting those poorest out of material destitution. So there is a significant distributive element to the degrowth position, and that is fundamental. Another common critique of the degrowth movement is that the ideas are unrealistic. But Sam says, look at the outcomes of the status quo. Sometimes degrowthers are accused of being utopian in the pejorative sense, in the sense that we're just inventing these theories or visions that sound nice but are unrealistic. I think there is uh, various ways to respond to that utopian critique. Um, on the one hand, uh, I would say that it's not the degrowthers who are being unrealistic, but it's the people who think that limitless growth on a finite planet is viable. On the flip side, I think you can almost embrace the charge of utopianism and say that until we have a vision of a just and sustainable society, it's very hard to move human hearts. It's very hard to mobilize communities. So I think it's an important and not at all self-indulgent process to try to imagine not only the problems with the existing society, but also what a coherent alternative would look like, and then to try to think through the process from how do we get from A to B. And that's what the degrowth movement is trying to do. Okay, so we've heard these strident calls for a new system, a new way of understanding our economies and the way that they're structured. But how much traction are these debates actually getting among people in power? I keep being surprised by new announcements from very mainstream institutions. This is Beth Stratford, a PhD candidate at the University of Leeds in England. Her research focuses on the structural changes needed as the world heads towards a resource-constrained future. So, for example, the European Environment Agency recently acknowledged that green growth is, green growth is unlikely and that calls for post-growth and degrowth alternatives ought to be integrated into EU policy. We had the President of Ireland calling explicitly for a post-growth steady state eco-social economy, you know, saying failure to achieve sufficient absolute decoupling implies that degrowth is the only sustainable strategy for planetary survival. It feels like the degrowth movement, the post-growth movement, has been effective in getting these things um, on the agenda. At the same time, Arguments around green growth also have political supporters. But Beth worries that the debate between such green growth advocates and the degrowth movement could be unhelpful in the longer term. This debate between green growthers and degrowth is in danger of becoming a, an own goal, if you like, because it can get extremely nerdy. To keep up with the debate, you have to get your head around all these quite esoteric concepts like energy return on energy investment and negative emissions technologies and and so on. Um, and that kind of, you know, nerdy and sometimes quite venomous debate, I think, can be really alienating for people. And I think we we maybe need to learn uh, a lesson from the debate with climate deniers, um, which which was quite a distraction for the climate movement. I'm a little bit worried that we could get lost in, in, in that sort of debate and it might make more sense to try and focus on arguments that are easier to win. 
which is why I would say let's focus on the need for constraints on resource use, uh, habitat protections, standards in our supply chain, procurement policies to make sure that the materials we're receiving did not come from child labour, did not come from extractive mines which cause devastating ecological consequences and so on um, and then yes let's let's focus on what we need to do to reduce our growth dependence like lorenzo beth calls herself a post-growth economist i'd say a really core part of the post-growth agenda is ending our dependence on growth and that's quite different from saying we want to reduce growth or end growth or degrow it's saying we don't want to have an economy that topples into debt crises and unemployment crises and inequality just because GDP slows down or the economy contracts. You don't have to be an environmentalist to understand why our growth dependency is a really big problem. A core plank in the post-growth thinking is that this spectre of shrinking GDP is kind of like a a straitjacket on our, our policymakers at the moment because It's used to block food standards, it's used to block labour rights, um, it's used to block environmental measures, when actually we need policymakers to have the freedom. When there are certain forms of activity that imperil our health, imperil our well-being, imperil the, the planet that we depend upon, we need our governments to have the confidence to scale back those economic activities without the fear of triggering an economic crisis and to give policymakers that confidence, we have to end our dependence on growth. Beth recently co-authored a report that put forward some concrete policy proposals for how the UK government could move away from its reliance on growth. We look at four key strategies for reducing our growth dependence, and they relate to jobs, rents, um, debt and basic need satisfaction. So broadly, they're relating to the the problem of rising unemployment without growth, rising debt without growth, rising rent extraction or inequality without growth, and the threat to basic need satisfaction without growth. The goal with these strategies is to help push politicians in another direction, away from growth, one that would give them the space to make the big environmental changes needed to prepare for a future with limited resources. Before I came back into academia, I was working as a climate campaigner. And the thing that became obvious to me over time was that our demands for habitat protections and caps on fossil fuel use and stuff were coming up against the very real concern that policymakers have that they need to prioritise growth in order to prevent all these economic catastrophes happening. So until you address that macroeconomic reality, it's quite difficult, I think, for policymakers to to prioritise environmental protections. I mean, they can scale up the good stuff, no problem. You know, the, the Green New Deal is not very threatening. It's a massive investment that will boost jobs. All else equal, it will also boost consumption because lots of people will have more money in their pocket to, to spend. But the problem is that we can't just be scaling up the good stuff. At the moment, for every 10 new megawatts of renewable energy that we generate, only one of those megawatts is displacing fossil fuels. The rest is just expanding our energy capacity. And that's a problem. We need to have policies to scale down the polluting stuff. And that does require us to think through our growth dependency and to make sure that if those 
measures to protect uh, the environment and to, and to limit our resource use. If those measures do constrain growth, we need to be able to deal with the consequences. Despite their differences, most of those in the degrowth, post-growth or green growth movements probably have one thing that unites them, the environment, and finding a way to live more sustainably that doesn't destroy the climate. The pandemic offers some opportunities, and food for thought, on this ultimate question. It totally makes sense to argue that the lockdowns imposed during the pandemic were a sort of natural degrowth experiment. Airplanes were grounded, people were staying home, etc., etc. So what did this actually do for the climate? Well, despite the enormous disruption to life as we knew it, there was only a relatively small dip in carbon emissions. Global emissions fell by 6% in 2020, but they're projected to gain back 4 of that 6% in 2021. So I asked Sam Alexander about this. How could we possibly reduce more without, as you kind of referred to, going back into caves and living next to candles? I think an important distinction is to recognize the difference between unplanned contraction and degrowth being planned contraction. So we have been living through unplanned recession. You know, up until the pandemic, the vision was more growth essentially across the board. And then this virus landed, disrupted our societies, and in a sort of a population health management strategy, we had to contract our economies, or it contracted in order to allow us to have those policies in place. Now, that isn't what a degrowth political theorist would say is how we bring about planned economic contraction. So In some sense, that would be my answer, is that a planned transition away from the growth is likely to be more effective than an unplanned contraction. There is a very significant mental shift in consciousness that is required to bring these changes about and to see that drastic though the changes will be, they can be in our interests if we manage this transition thoughtfully, compassionately, and in solidarity with both our fellow humans around the world as well as the other species that are needing us to um, regenerate these damaged ecosystems. Some of these big questions about repairing the planet and its ecosystems will be discussed at the COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow. So I asked Lorenzo Fioramanti whether he was hopeful for a change in direction from the world's leaders. I'm not optimistic at all. I'm a scientist, so I look at things the way they are. And I see a lack of leadership. I see a lack of courage. I think COP is going to be a bit of a letdown. Uh, I think there is no clear understanding of how serious the situation is, of how much we need to change our economic structures in order to attain environmental objectives. We still see the environmental question as separate from the economic one on many different levels, especially in policies. I think there are a few countries around the world where governments have already started questioning GDP growth. Many of them, also because of the contraction that we experienced due to COVID, are excited at the idea that uh, the economies can bounce back and, you know, they're looking at the GDP numbers. There is an obsession with returning to what GDP growth meant before COVID. So I'm not very positive, but I see signs of hope coming from the youth, coming from, um, you know, social movements around the world, especially among teenagers and, and youngsters calling for 
an economic overhaul of, of the global economy. I see a positive message coming also from, from church leaders, and I, and I know that other religions have got similar messages as well. Um, so there are, there's a contradiction. I think we're intellectually prepared to understand what needs to be done, but our policy tools are still stuck to the world that we, we had a few years ago. And now the question is not whether we're going to change or not. We are going to change. The question is whether the pace is going to be the right one. Because if we are too slow, then the change is not going to make any difference. You can read more about these debates and alternative models to measuring GDP on theconversation.com. We'll post some links in the show notes. To end this week's episode, we've got some recommended reading from Veronica Maduna, Science, Health and Environment Editor at The Conversation in New Zealand. Hi, this is Veronica Maduna. I'm one of two editors in New Zealand and I'm based in the capital city, Wellington. I'd like to recommend a couple of articles we've published recently. Both explore New Zealand's changing response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The first is a piece we've worked on with Michael Plank and Sean Hindi, who are both at the University of Auckland, or more specifically at Te Punaha Matatini, a research centre that models complex systems, including the spread of a virus through a population. For much of the pandemic response, New Zealand has pursued an elimination strategy, stamping out outbreaks completely to have zero cases in the community. And this has served us very well. Compared with other countries within the OECD, New Zealand has the lowest number of cases and deaths per capita. And until recently, we've lived with almost no restrictions except for relatively short periods of strict lockdowns. But of course, the Delta variant, which arrived from Australia in August, changed everything, as it has in other countries. New Zealand's largest city, Auckland, has been locked down ever since. It's become impossible to stop the virus from spreading, and the government has changed tack, away from elimination to a strategy of suppression to contain outbreaks in the community while stopping the virus at the border through ongoing mandatory two-week quarantine. And just last week, New Zealand announced a new system to begin a slow phase of reopening. It bets heavily on vaccination. With targets of 90% of the eligible population fully vaccinated, mandatory vaccination for people in a range of professions, from teachers to hairdressers, and vaccine certificates for everyone else. The authors explore whether that will be enough to bring the virus under control in time for the Southern Hemisphere summer. The second piece I'd like to recommend looks at the consequences of New Zealand's changing pandemic response. Like other crises, COVID-19 highlighted and exacerbated existing inequities in health outcomes. The change away from elimination comes at a point when some parts of the country still have low vaccination rates, in particular Maori communities. University of Auckland public health researcher Colin Tukuitonga reminds readers that during the influenza pandemic in 1918, the mortality rate among Maori was eight times that of Europeans, and that the avoidable introduction of influenza to Samoa from New Zealand resulted in the deaths of about 22% of the population. He argues that New Zealand cannot completely abandon elimination while vaccine coverage remains low among the most vulnerable people. 
and that a shift to a new pandemic approach must only happen once vaccination rates in all communities, including Maori and Pacifica, are as high as possible and no less than 90%. I hope you enjoy reading these articles. But for now, that's all from me. All the best from New Zealand. Veronica Maduna there in Wellington. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode. And thanks to the conversation editors, Will Freitas, Caroline Southey, Moina Spooner and Scott White. And to Alice Mason for our social media promotion. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com or email us podcast at theconversation.com. You can also sign up for our free daily email. Just click the link in the show notes. If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to. And tell your friends and family about the show too. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. I'm Dan Marino. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.